You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. Coming up, we take a look at this year's Farm Bill, a massive five-year spending package that includes agriculture, conservation policy, food assistance, and more. Right now, it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with a story about finding home within yourself. How do you travel halfway around the world and still feel connected to home? For WPR's Karina Abrego-Cook of Green Bay, she listened to the sound of her own voice and the voice of someone she loves. She shares her story as part of the Home is Here project, which amplifies the voices of the growing number of Black, Asian, Native American, and Hispanic residents who call Northeastern Wisconsin home. Two things about me that you need to know for this story. I've always been loud and proud about my family's background and where I come from. Also, I'm an Anglophile, meaning I'm obsessed with British culture. It started with my love of Tears for Fears when I was three, and then the Beatles in my teen years. Growing up, I was always forthcoming about my heritage. My family moved from Kenosha to Green Bay in 1987, and there weren't many people who looked anything like me in Northeast Wisconsin. So people often flat out asked me, what are you? I'm half Mexican, a quarter Japanese, an eighth Irish, and an eighth Norwegian. I joke that I'm diverse within myself, or I'd make a new term calling myself Hispasian or triracial. I remember one time when I was 12, I was talking about our family background and my dad said, yeah, but if you travel outside the country, you aren't gonna say that. You're gonna tell them you're American. That stuck with me my entire life. I had to wait another 12 years to leave the country to see how an exchange with someone from outside the country might go. My friend Sean asked me if I wanted to join him in London for his spring break. It was the trip of a lifetime. While there, we dined with a group of Romanian college students. My family background eventually came up in conversation, and their jaws dropped. They had never met someone with such a diverse background. In a way, it was a new experience for me too, because as Americans, we're used to people having ancestors from more than one country. My trip to London not only got me thinking about my tri-racial identity, but also my Wisconsin accent. You know the accent with its long vowels. Now something strange happened in my short time in London. As the week progressed, my friend and I noticed my accent changing. One morning at a coffee shop, I ordered an Americano and I didn't recognize the voice that came out of my mouth. I didn't sound like my Wisconsin self. In fact, I sounded a little British. <laughs> I was in London for less than a week and I was taking on bits of their accent. I was not totally surprised though. I've always been able to imitate or mimic others easily. Though this time it was subconscious mimicking. Was it because I wanted to be British? Not for the food, but you know, the music and the culture, of course. Later that week, we went to the loudest Irish pub on St. Patrick's Day, and I struck up a conversation with a guy from Australia. I'm not sure how he could hear it, but he said I sounded like I was from Canada. And I laughed and I told him that I was from not far from there. So my Wisconsin accent wasn't completely gone. The next day was the moment I was really looking forward to during the whole trip. It was the visit to Abbey Road Studios. After doing all the touristy beetle things and posing for photos, I couldn't wait to tell my dad about my adventure. After all, he bought me my first Beatles CD, Rubber Soul. Incidentally, it was the first Beatles album he had. I found one of those iconic red British phone booths to call my musician dad, who always fostered my love of music. After he answered, I told him how I walked across Abbey Road barefoot like Paul McCartney and peeped through the studio's iron gates. And it was at that moment, my friend said, that my Northeast Wisconsin accent came back completely. 
It's because I was talking to Dad in Green Bay. Wherever my dad is, that's home. My name is Karina. I'm half Mexican, a quarter Japanese, an eighth Irish, and an eighth Norwegian. I call Green Bay home, and you can hear it in my Wisconsin-accented voice. Karina Abrego-Cook is an outreach specialist with Wisconsin Public Radio. And her story is part of the Home is Here project from the New News Lab, a local news collaboration in northeastern Wisconsin made up of six media organizations, including WPR and the Green Bay Press-Gazette. More information can be found at wisconsinlife.org. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lola Mary Peterson of Appleton. I'm Maureen McCollum. Now, Congress is in the midst of ongoing negotiations over the Farm Bill, a multi-billion dollar five-year spending plan affecting farmers, rural communities, food assistance programs, conservation, and more. It's not clear whether lawmakers will meet the deadline just a few weeks away on September 30th. We're talking about the long journey to a new five-year omnibus spending plan that is the Farm Bill, and you can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you want to see changes to nutrition assistance programs? Are you a farmer yourself? What do you want to see in this year's farm bill that uh, is the same or maybe different compared to the last bill back from 2018? Join in with your hopes, your questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Meredith Lee Hill is a food and agriculture reporter for Politico. Meredith, thanks a lot for joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I give a tiny taste of the scope of the Farm Bill. It's big. Can you spell out some of what is part of this every five-year-ish Farm Bill? Right, it's very large. I mean, the Farm Bill is is really the cornerstone of the food and agriculture sectors in the U.S., and it's one of really the few bipartisan reauthorization bills left in Congress. And as you mentioned, it normally comes up every five years. Uh, It as also, as you mentioned, it provides funding for everything from you know rural job development programs, food assistance programs for more than 40 million low-income Americans, as well as conservation programs, crop insurance, and other support programs for farmers. So this year, for the first time, the bill is expected to top a trillion dollars in spending over the next 10 years. So it is a massive bill, and it's a very big lift in Congress. And uh, the biggest uh, items in this, I look at charts, I see the food assistance. When it comes to dollar amounts, that is a, a really big part of this. How important is that? Right. It is a, it's a large part of the farm bill. Actually, 80% of the farm bill um, is made up uh, from nutrition programs. And the largest of that being the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, uh, which helps feed more than 41 million low-income Americans. And that program um, is really at the center of a big larger fight on Capitol Hill right now. We saw it come up earlier this year in the debt ceiling uh, negotiations between uh, Democrats and President Joe Biden and House Republicans. House Republicans were able to pare back um, some of the um, eligibility around that program. And so that is one of the major fights uh, coming up in the Farm Bill is that, again, Republicans are looking to pare back spending on the program, especially after increases uh, for food assistance during the pandemic that we saw over the past few years. Democrats are very opposed to that. They want to boost spending on nutrition um, in order to stave off some of the um, food insecurity that we saw grow during the pandemic. 
And then let's turn to the farming side. Now, uh, farmers get some benefit from those food aid programs because presumably people are using food aid to buy food grown by farmers. But when it comes to direct programs that directly affect farmers, what are some of the key items in the Farm Bill? Right. Yes, obviously, uh, farmers uh, do get indirect benefits uh, from the food aid programs, but other programs, uh, especially some of the commodity support programs, um, some things like crop insurance, those are really uh, risk management tools that farmers rely on when there's bad weather um, or other uh, natural disasters that hit um, at any time for farmers. So there's some there's really important uh, farm programs in the farm bill as well that uh, Republicans, especially, but also Democrats in rural districts um, are, are very fierce supporters of uh, and are looking to protect this year. Now, in Congress right now, there's a defense appropriation bill, a lot of other spending bills. Uh, we just had this uh, impeachment inquiry drop. Is there uh, just so much going on in Congress that the farm bill could end up being on a, a back burner? Right. I mean, we're seeing really the delays pile up this year. Um, right now, as you mentioned, there's a, a major government funding fight going on. Um, where lawmakers are racing essentially to stave off a federal shutdown on October 1st. So really all the oxygen on Capitol Hill is around the appropriations process, around this government spending fight. Uh, and so the farm bill um, has gradually gotten delayed more and more as the year has gone on. And it's, it is unlikely at this point that there is a sliver of time, even before the end of the year, where either the House um, and or the Senate version of the Farm Bill might make it to the floor for a, a full floor vote. The committees are still working on the bills. Uh, They're hammering out converse, or conversations and uh, talks around some of these big contentious issues. We mentioned the fight over nutrition funding, um, over some of the commodity support programs. There's big questions about uh, a pot of nearly $20 billion in climate-related agriculture funds from Democrats' Inflation Reduction Act that goes for farm bill conservation programs. Republicans would like to move some of that money around to, to fill some spending gaps. Democrats are very opposed to that. So that's another um, big issue that they're working through uh, as we face a September 30th deadline where some of the beginning programs of the Farm Bill expire. Um, but really, the, the big clip for the Farm Bill is the end of the year. And so lawmakers are going to have to decide in the next few weeks whether to um, work on a larger extension if they're unable to get anything done before the end of, of the year. Yeah, if nothing gets done by the end of the year, and if somehow there's no extension, what happens to all these programs we're talking about? They I assume they don't shut down. I don't know. Maybe they do. Right. I mean, there are um, there's a variety of things that happen. And one of the odd things about the Farm Bill is that if it's not reauthorized, a lot of the programs, especially around commodities, you know, row crops, things like corn, soy, those actually revert to um, Depression era, like 1930s and 1940s laws. And that um, essentially impacts how much the federal government is buying of certain commodities uh, and, and also the essentially the equation around some of the support that farmers get. And so really it just throws all of those things um, into chaos a little bit. So in order to stave off that um, some of those, either the funding or the reauthorization problems, 
lawmakers are really committed to if they are unable to get a, a full farm bill reauthorization done before the end of the year, they will likely, if there's another um, continuing resolution in in Congress over spending, maybe in November, that's when they're going to decide if there's maybe a one-year or a two-year extension of the current farm bill. Talking to Meredith Lee Hill, is a food and agriculture reporter for Politico, talking about the upcoming deadline for the multi-billion dollar five-year Farm Bill, you can join in at 800-642-1234. Does the Farm Bill affect you directly, or do you want to know if it affects you if you uh, use or have used food assistance programs like SNAP or work with people who do? Uh, If you are a farmer yourself, if you rely on things like a federal crop insurance or uh, subsidies for certain types of commodity crops, join in with your thoughts, your experiences, your questions at 800 642 one two three four. That's eight hundred six four two one two three four. You can also email ideas at wpr.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with Politico food and agriculture reporter Meredith Lee Hill, looking at the federal farm bill, which Congress needs to sign by September thirtieth. Sounds like they probably won't. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions about what the Farm Bill does? What is in it? Do you want to see changes to food assistance? One of the points of contention. How about agriculture-related carbon-neutral efforts, climate change efforts? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Ross is with us in Middleton. Ross, hi. Hi. Um, the question I'm wondering about is if the guests, if, if, if they know what kind of incentives or, or uh, uh, help is, uh, assistance for smaller farmers, uh, maybe in, in, in the organic farming area and, and or like what might be thought of as sustainable, sustainable farming? Ross, thanks a lot for the call. As I understand it, Meredith, uh, that has been in past farm bills. What, uh, what might that include? Right. Some of the the work that Democrats um, took on in their Inflation Reduction Act is that they really wanted um, to push more um, sustainable and climate-focused efforts into U.S. agriculture. And so some of the, um, there's a pot of nearly $20 billion um, in funding that will likely be brought into the Farm Bill that is for um, conservation programs that farmers use in order to capture carbon uh, and other sustainable efforts. So that is one that is one main piece of that. I will say other uh, on your other point of your question for smaller farmers, um, I think that is a big emphasis this year for the Biden administration in particular. We've seen um, in in past farm bills um, and and a bigger argument from some of the progressive Democrats is that there are too many subsidies in the farm bill for larger farms um, and really small farms need a lot of attention, um, especially in the upper Midwest. And so some of the programs that um, Republicans, some Republicans um, and Democrats are looking at would boost um, assistance and um, especially for technical support and other efforts to help smaller farmers get USDA loans and other access to aid. That is something that they're they're looking to beef up in this farm bill. 
Thanks a lot for the call, Ross, at 800-642-1234. Can you talk about some of the politics here, Meredith? I mean, often there are Democrat and Republican issues. This is also a case where, uh, in reading your reporting, there are agricultural state and everybody else issues. How does that all play into this? Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, the Of the politics on the Hill you're talking about? Exactly, yeah, within Congress. Right. Um, I mean, it is an interesting, there's been an interesting change, um, especially in the makeup of the agriculture committees over the past um, few decades. Obviously, Democrats have lost their um, stronger foothold in rural districts. And so some, a lot of the rural districts, a majority now are represented um, by Republicans. And there are a few Democrats still in, in, Repub- or in um, rural districts, but that really changes the priorities and um, the makeup of, of some of these efforts. And so Republicans, um, for the most part, are really interested in, in protecting production agriculture uh, across um, the country and uh, farm efforts there. And Democrats have, uh, especially those in, in rural districts are really interested in protecting things like crop insurance and, and all the commodity programs for farmers. Um, but a large contingency of Democrats are in districts that uh, no longer touch any farms. Uh, and so one of their bigger uh, priorities is boosting food aid under the nutrition programs to make sure people in rural areas, but also in urban areas, um, get food assistance. Now, the Senate uh, will include some agricultural state uh, senators, uh, Democrats and Republicans, Wisconsin included. Are things moving any more smoothly or advancing more when it comes to the farm bill on the Senate side of things or as opposed to the House? Or is there just not a lot of action uh, anywhere? There's there's uh, there's an awful lot of talk. Uh, the action uh, is all there's also some some pretty big problems on the Senate side as well. Uh, the the big issue there, as I mentioned before, is really um, Senate Agriculture Committee Chairwoman Debbie Stabenow, uh, who I just talked to yesterday about this, uh, is really trying to work through a lot of the funding challenges with limited new funds this year. Um, And she's working very hard to keep some of these climate funds for agriculture programs where they are. But that also leads to a lot of other hard decisions about um, other farm programs and balancing that with all the nutrition programs that she also wants to keep whole. And so that's something that she is working through with the top Republican on the Senate Agriculture Committee, John Bozeman of Arkansas, he's very interested in boosting commodity reference prices for farmers along with crop insurance. Um, and so that is something that they're working through, um, but it has been quite a slog and they um, are expecting not to have text out of their committee, like a, a full farm bill draft, uh, likely until maybe November or later. Talking to Meredith Lee Hill, food and agriculture reporter for Politico, looking at progress or lack of progress on the federal five-year farm bill and how it affects uh, people around the country, uh, food programs, farmers, and a lot more. Uh, what Are there people, uh, Meredith, trying to lead an effort to, to sit down and get this thing rolling uh, maybe by the end of the year? Is there any uh, prospect that it seems like people will kick this into gear? I, they are definitely um, 
talking as much as they can, lawmakers, the top Republican and, and Democrat on both the House and Senate Agriculture Committee are in um, pretty frequent contact uh, talking through kind of the massive bill and all of the priorities that they have to get through. Um, they have made some progress on looking at uh, where they can plus up funds. Um, the In the Senate, uh, Senator Stabenow and Bozeman recently asked Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack to use some internal USDA funds to bo um, boost trade programs for U.S. agriculture exports abroad, and they think that might free up some money in the Farm Bill for you know some of the other efforts that they're trying to fund. So it, they are working through things. They're they're um, they're talking, uh, and I think we'll see once we get through the government funding uh, effort. We have to remember that the uh, the top Democrat on the Senate Agriculture Committee, Debbie Sabanow, is a member of Democratic leadership, so she's very uh, mired in the government funding fight right now herself. Um, and so I think once we get through October 1st, there'll be uh, a chance for them to sit down um, with some more, hopefully, meat on the bones in these talks. Meredith, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Meredith Lee Hill is a food and agriculture reporter for Politico. She talked to us about the ongoing efforts to pass a farm bill by the end of the year. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, so-called artificial intelligence programs like ChatGPT could have a big impact on schools. An English teacher joins the show to make the case that we need to start rethinking the way we teach language and literature in the AI era. And Barbie and Oppenheimer got people back into movie theaters over the summer. Was that a blip or the start of something new? Check out the future of movies in actual theaters and share your experiences. You can start right now on the Ideas Network Facebook page. That more coming up tomorrow here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, tweens and teens live a big part of their lives online and it can be tough to navigate the social media landscape. The author of the new book, Growing Up in Public, shares advice for parents and for kids. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Teen and preteen years can be difficult under any circumstances, at times confusing, scary, exciting, you name it, for both kids and their parents or guardians. Now throw in the online world and social media where kids grow up in a lot of ways in public. A lot of parents wonder how to help their kids manage all that without becoming 24-7 monitors of their online activity. Our next guest has advice, and she says it starts with mentoring, modeling, and building trust. You could join in at 800-642-1234. How do you talk to your kids about what they do online? What questions do you have about how to talk to your kids about what they do online? Has having kids uh, with the Internet made parenting easier, harder for you? If you are a young person yourself or were recently a teenager, love to hear your experiences navigating the world of social media and how your parents may have helped or hindered that. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. 
Devorah Heitner is an author and speaker on technology and parenting in the digital age. She consults with schools about digital wellness policies and with app developers and tech companies on ethical practices. Her books include ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Her newest book is called Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. Devorah, thanks a lot for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Now, you write that you are like me, a parent uh, who grew up before the social media age where we could make mistakes and know that they weren't going to go viral. Is there kind of a communication gap between, you know, parents of the pre-internet generation and the kids growing up just swimming in this stuff? I think there is. And there's there's absolutely a lot of worry on parents' part that kids can go viral. And I think because we all lived our own mistakes in middle school, high school, and even college we're very aware of the sort of youthful, dumb, indiscreet things that might happen and that we know, you know, are kind of universally part of growing up even. And so it, it makes us really nervous. A lot of parents are very nervous to think about the fact that a video or a photo of, you know, your kid that their friend posts could become a huge problem because it's so much more searchable and shareable than anything dumb that we did. You get a lot of questions from parents you write that are pretty nuts and bolts. You know, should I use this kind of monitoring thing? Should I bar kids from using this platform? Whatever. And and we'll talk some about those things. But you, I think, started a more fundamental place about how to parent to prepare kids for dealing with these issues. Uh, a quote, uh, a shift, you say, from consequences to building character. Can you talk about what you have in mind? Absolutely. You You want to think about not, oh, you won't get into an elite college if you post that because that's an external threat. And that's basically telling kids, don't get caught. What we actually want to say is don't do harm. Don't do things, you know, on Discord, on Instagram, on YouTube, on TikTok that are harmful, right? Don't malign a group of people or an individual. Don't do things that you know will cause hurt feelings or worse. Don't incite violence, right? And these are things that we know are really problematic. And we don't want to say, don't do it because Harvard might rescind your admission, we want to say don't do it because we don't want to cause harm and we don't want to share things that might cause people to have the wrong idea about us and who we are. So if we can keep the conversation focused on character, it's more accurate, it's more developmentally appropriate, it's more true because frankly you might do something that's pretty terrible and still get into an elite school and they just won't know, but that's as a parent that doesn't make me happy. I'm not like, "Oh great, you got away with it." Right. The point is, who are you as a human being? So I think we need to shift that conversation to character and away from the threat of consequences. I remember my teen years. I was not all that uh, bright. I made dumb decisions sometimes impulsively. I'm sure if I had social media, I would have amplified them quite a bit. How do we work with a a preteen or a teen to, I guess, take that step? Uh, to not be impulsive, to think about a consequence before doing stuff online. It's tricky because it really does go against their neurobiology to not be impulsive. <laughs> you know, teenagers are wired to think more about the rewards than the long-term consequences of an action. And so what we have to do is try to save them from themselves. And some of that maybe is not amplifying when teenagers make mistakes, we don't need to participate in amplifying that to reduce the harm factor. We can also look at things like in the UK and Europe, kids have the right to be forgotten. They can take things down that they posted when they were under 18. The realities of that with the internet, and I've talked to UK folks about this, it doesn't really fully work if your kid's involved in a tremendous scandal. It's still hard to pull that off the internet. But I do think the idea of thinking about 
not creating a permanent record of every dumb joke you ever said, starting when you were 11 or 13, is a good one. And we, as parents and educators in the US, should be thinking about like, what can we do from a policy perspective? Because the neurobiology and the technology, you know, intersect in a way that's pretty dicey for our kids. Uh, one option people might think uh, is maybe let's get out of the whole thing altogether. Say, kid, no device, uh, no social media for you. Problem solved. Uh, what do you think of that approach? I don't think that's a good strategy. I think kids need to know how to be citizens in digital communities. We can't just launch them at 18 and let them go off the deep end. Then, if anything, it's better to make your mistakes when you're young and learn about accountability in a digital community and communication strategies that work and how to resolve conflict when you're young enough to have a little bit more sort of forgivability, if you will, and a little bit less at stake. Like say, you're not going to hopefully blow up your career at 14, right? Hopefully that, that's hope. you know still to come. So I think it's really important that we do teach kids how to be part of digital communities. I don't think we should push them in before they're ready, but I think school can be a great place to learn, for example, how to be part of a hangout or you know, a, do a shared document or other things in a community where you actually know the people involved before you get into digital communities where you don't know the other people, because that's sort of a next level experience. And ideally, we can scaffold kids experience growing more and more familiar with how to be participants in a digital community in a way that's appropriate. Talking to Devorah Heitner about her new book, Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions for our guest, maybe your own experiences as a parent or teen yourself. Join in at 800-642-1234. Devorah, I didn't end up doing a lot of monitoring with my kids. They're they're 20 now, so they're, they're out the door. Uh, but I was amazed reading your chapter on options available for parents. There's a lot, a lot of ways to keep tabs on our kids online and social media and geolocation and so on and so forth. What do you recommend as parents survey that and think, yeah, maybe I should do this? I think it's more important to talk to your kids and have a trusting, open relationship with your kids than anything else. And I think if you do monitor them, say you have a new phone user, I would do it with them. Like, if they're new at it and you want to look at their text with them, let's say, let's sit down together and look at your text once a week or something until I see that you've got this. I don't think we want to use technology to surveil our kids. And particularly, we don't want to do it covertly. If we are monitoring, they should know we're monitoring. And in situations where they are being monitored by a third party like school, I do think it's fair to remind kids, hey, you know what, if you post this in the school Google chat, right, your teacher can see it. Like, I do think when kids are being monitored, they should know. If we covertly monitor our kids and go kind of all NSA, KGB on our kids, whatever, we are going to have a lot of data that we won't know what to do with. And the first time we share it with them, we're no longer covertly monitoring. We've ruptured trust. And we're often catching kids after they've made the mistake instead of before. What we want to do is teach kids how to make good choices, let them come to us if they've made a mistake that they need to kind of repair or move forward from. And we don't want to teach them that they can never repair a digital mistake. We've all made digital mistakes. Everyone listening to this has at least forgotten to BCC at some point and CC'd people and shared an email address with someone they shouldn't or you know, posted news on LinkedIn that wasn't public yet or just something, right? I'm not saying you know tremendous digital mistakes, but we've all made some digital mistakes. And I think it's important that we don't teach kids that those can never be solved and they should be terrified because in the most extreme scenario, that means that a kid who made, makes a digital mistake might feel desperate enough to contemplate ending their own life. What we wanna do is obviously try to avoid the worst digital mistakes, talk to kids about planning for that, but also talk to them about how we can move forward and repair 
if we do share something we shouldn't. One uh, starting point that I loved in your book was not so much about what the kids are posting, but what the parents are posting about the kids. And of course, parents want to uh, post uh, baby pictures through graduation pictures and everything. You talk about the idea of you know, negotiations as a family for what a kid is comfortable being posted about them and, and, and what they aren't. How do we approach that? I think we need to be asking our kids permission by the time they can talk to us and give it. And when they're too little for that, we should, if in doubt, not share it out. Picture that three-year-old running around in their underpants being adorable as a someday very self-conscious 13-year-old who will not appreciate that video being out there. So, you know, if in doubt, do not share it out. And by asking permission from our kids, we're actually setting up really great boundaries and we're teaching them that we respect their privacy and we're giving them the opportunity to recognize that you ask permission before you share someone's picture, which is something we want them to know before they start taking and sharing pictures of their friends. We're talking to Devorah Heitner about her new book. It's called Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. You can join in at 800-642-1234. How have you dealt with this in your family, whether you're the parent or the kid or a parent who used to be a kid dealing with these issues? What kind of boundaries, what kind of rules, what kind of conversations do you have in your household? What do you think about various ways to monitor kids' uh, online activities? If you need some advice from our guest, join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also send us an email, ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation with Devorah Heitner about a new book. It's called Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World, packed with advice for parents and teens and preteens about how to handle social media and the digital world. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Maybe you're taking our lesson to not share information publicly to heart, but uh, if you have a story you'd be willing to share, like to share, you could join in at 800-642-1234. Did you have a difficult experience with uh, a teen posting something online that maybe they shouldn't have ought to. How did you handle that? What kind of things did you do to prepare your kids or prepare if you were the kid in this situation yourself? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. So what do we do, Devorah, when the bad thing happens. The kid posts something and it goes, you know, maybe not even internationally viral, but uh, in their school viral or something like that and causes harm and and, uh, and a lot of attention. How can we do some, some triage and try to fix things? Yeah, I mean, I shared the story of the kids in Baraboo in the book. And some of you will remember that that's a situation where you know, there was a photo in the community and some kids were making either white supremacist signs or a kind of Nazi high Hitler, Heil Hitler, you know, arm gesture, and it went around the world. Um, and there are all kinds of ways that, you know, in the postmortem, we could think like they could have done better in that community to deal with what happened. But I think we all learn from situations like that. One of the tricky things is when something gets really big and it becomes national or international news, it becomes harder to have honest conversations in a community that might need to happen. Like there were, 
kids in that community who wanted to apologize and make amends and repair, which is what I think they should have happened and what in some cases did happen. And that's what I would want, you know, any, any kid to have the opportunity to do if they realize like, wow, I made this significant error. I've hurt people by doing this. I want to come forward. But when it becomes a sort of media circus, it becomes harder because parents are like, want you to sort of stay away and hide. They don't want their kid to become known for this. So they don't want the kid to even come forward and apologize. So I think we need to make sure that kids have a way to make repair, make restitution as much as possible in the time and in the community where it happens. And then we need to let it go and move on, right? We need to make sure kids don't sort of pay and pay for the rest of their lives for like this one thoughtless moment, even though it's serious. Like I'm not saying, and I want to be really clear, I'm not being an apologist for doing harmful things online or off. But I do think kids need to make the repair in the moment or in the community where it happens, not just a pro forma apology because they got caught, but really recognize and maybe do some further education as well for those kids. Maybe they didn't really understand the implications of referring to the Holocaust that way. Maybe the implications of white supremacy and the violence that entails weren't totally clear to them. And that's where we as school systems need to make sure we're showing up for our kids. When we see a kid use a slur or make a hateful gesture, we need to assume that they're the canary in the coal mine, and this is happening in a more widespread way in the community, and we need to make sure we're teaching kids the history of why those practices and words and gestures are so harmful. Not just focus all our outrage on that one kid, but make sure the entire community is addressed and also make sure that the targeted community is supported, right? So we have a lot of work to do when a kids mess up in that kind of way, and I think what we end up doing often is throwing that one kid or those group of kids under the bus and saying, oh, we had a racism problem here in Baraboo, but we got those kids. We found out those kids, let's share their faces everywhere. Instead of saying, wait a minute, like, do those kids not know the history? Where, where did we go wrong? And what can we do to support our neighbors um, who are targeted by this gesture? Another thing that struck me about uh, a communication gap that we talked about earlier, Devorah, is uh, you talk to a lot of parents and a lot of, of youth. Uh, parents often will say things like, it sounds like uh, kids don't care about privacy anymore. But then when you talk to kids, it's a lot, there's a lot more nuance to how they think about privacy. What do you hear when you talk to, to teens who are using social media? Kids will say that a practice is creepy if they find it creepy. So they'll say like someone going through all your old posts when they're your new friend is creepy and liking a really old post. Or they'll say that their parents, you know, sharing pictures of them um, or even worse, like reading their texts is a real violation. So kids do care about privacy. The flip side is they're much more open about some things that in our generation were much more taboo and we didn't talk about. And that's one of the things I love about this generation is they are talking about mental health and other issues that we often kept pri private in our day. And even though like when I was a teenager, I did see a therapist, I never told my friends because I just figured it was taboo. Like I didn't even, no one ever told me, no, don't tell anyone you have a therapist. I just kind of like got the memo because it was the nineties and nobody talked about going to therapy. And now I love that it's an option that kids could say, I'm going to therapy. And let me be clear that I think it's still fine if someone wants to keep and chooses to keep that private, but I love living in a world where so many of these things are more destigmatized and a kid could potentially say to their friends, oh, got to bounce, I've got therapy. And that's some of the kinds of things they're disclosing online where we might say, oh, they're oversharing. But I want to challenge adults who say that kids are oversharing to think about, are they oversharing or are they changing the culture in a more open direction? Talking to Devorah Heitner about her new book, Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. 
Uh, you also have a chapter in your book uh, devoted to concerns about sexting, which is maybe uh, taking that openness to, to do things online a little too far. What do you want parents to know uh, and talk to their kids about when it comes to sending sexually explicit images? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's it's illegal, right? So we know that. But it's more important to lean into the privacy and the social risks with kids with prevention. But we don't want to lean so far into prevention with sending nudes or explicit photos that our kids can't come to us if they have shared a photo, especially if that photo then is reshared without their consent, right? So I think I want to be clear, like, you know, none of us really want our kids to do this, right? Mm -hmm. it's, there's a lot of privacy risks, there's legal risks, there's all kinds of risks, but it's especially important that kids don't coerce other kids into doing it or be coerced. And the research shows that the kids who experience the most mental distress and anguish are kids who get coerced or kids whose photos are shared outside of the original intended audience. In other words, two kids who are in love who exchange photos might not make us as parents happy and it's not technically legal, but if no one ever is the wiser, the mental health outcomes are often fine, right? I mean, there's still the same risks as if those kids did other things together in a relationship. But what's important to understand is when kids are coerced or their photos are shared to a wider audience without consent, that's a tremendous violation that can lead to a lot of mental health issues for kids and a lot of social issues and stigma. Unfairly, even in 2023, we see this land on girls more often where girls are shamed for their picture going around, whereas some boys will share pictures and not, not get shamed, um, or boys will share pictures and girls will maybe find it yucky or block them, but not report it. So there's just a tremendous double standard around this stuff. And I think we really need to proactively educate our kids around consent, making sure they know they should never coerce someone that if they have had their photo shared and it's violating their privacy, that they can they they deserve help and we still respect them. We're not so focused on prevention and shaming kids that we that we don't let kids know, hey, you have rights here. If your photo of yourself that you took and shared with one person that you trusted and that person violates your trust, they messed up and you have rights. And there are things that as an adult, I can do to help protect you. Um, I may never be able to get that photo back, let me be clear, but you know we can get it taken down from any sites where it's been shared, especially because minors do have that right. Um, and sites do not wanna be hosting child pornography. So I think it's really important that our kids know that we still respect them, even if we've, they've made a choice that maybe we're not jumping up and down about. If we lean too much into the fear factor with sexting, I, I, the worry I have as an educator and a parent is that kids won't come to us if they need us. In just our last uh, little over a minute or so, Devorah, one thing that often gets overlooked is that, hey, our teen years are times where we're experimenting with our identity. We're kind of trying on different things. And that's a lot of what is happening on social media. How big a part of the story is that? It's absolutely part of the story. And one of the tricky things is kids will do things to get a rise out of their friends or be outrageous. You know, like I talked to some kids in Chicago who like, oh, it would be hilarious to like throw a gang sign and have a picture of me doing it. And they're not affiliated. They're, they have nothing to do with any of that. Um, but it it's going to make them vulnerable to have shared that image, right? But Or kids will, I talked to a family where the kid had shared a picture of themselves with some vape stuff and the kid didn't even vape. He just thought it'd be hilarious to show with friends. And that's the tricky thing is with social, we're always talking to these different audiences and managing tremendously different contexts. And something that's funny to your three friends is, could could get you in big trouble if someone else sees it. And that's so often what happens with social media. And it leads to, I think, tremendous misunderstandings and some consequences for kids that 
I think are often disproportionate to the intent of what they shared. Devorah, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Devorah Heitner is an author and speaker on technology and parenting in the digital age. We've been talking about her newest book. It's called Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. Still time for you to share what you've done in your own family, lessons you might like to share with others. You can always email us, ideas at WPR.org. That's ideas at WPR.org. Remember, you can share this conversation if there's somebody who you would like to have listen to some of the lessons from our guest today. Find it in our program notes over at WPR.org or download the Wisconsin Public Radio app for live streaming and our extensive archives. I'm Rob Ferrett. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time here on the Ideas Network.